0: Welcome to We Are What We Buy with Dr. Michael Solomon. We'll take a deep dive to look at the patterns, habits, brands, and benefits that drive your customers to buy. The tips and concepts you'll hear on the program will have you standing head and shoulders above your competition. Now here's your host, Dr. Michael Solomon.
1: Wiser Solutions helps brands and retailers to identify how consumers are interacting with their brand and store associates in the retail setting through the use of crowd-sourced intelligence. Christina, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's awesome to be here.
1: Well it's my pleasure. And I know that you and your company help clients to identify what we might call pain points, that is, mm-hmm. issues in the store that, that get in the way of shoppers having the best possible experience. And of course that so, in turn yeah. re- reduces the amount of revenue these stores may earn. So, uh, so I, I want to learn more about how you guys do this. And I want to start with the phrase crowdsourced intelligence, which is quite a mouthful. Um, can you tell yeah. us more about what that is and, and how you use it in your work?
2: I guess I'll just kind of set up how typical businesses and brands work for anyone who might not be familiar. Um, But as we browse the the aisles of our grocery stores, I often go into Whole Foods, so I can use that as an example. I, of course, have my regular products that I buy. And if I'm going to buy a certain granola, the odds are that that granola company has a team that they hire internally to ensure that that granola is there, it's in the right place. And my odds that I'm going to purchase that are as great as possible. However, as you probably know, there can only be so many field representatives that a business can hire to ensure that this is happening nationwide. So there's some stores that maybe they don't get to, or maybe they don't really have good coverage on, or maybe a representative is sick that week and can't cover the store. So what happens? Well, that granola could go totally out of stock. And I, as a consumer am like, well, what the heck? I came here specifically for this and I guess I'm going to try another granola and potentially get hooked on that. And that original granola company has potentially lost me as a customer for life. So without having coverage on every single store, What Wiser helps with, or I guess what crowdsourcing intelligence really is, is we have a crowd of over 700,000 shoppers that all use one app. It's called Mobi. And essentially on that app, as soon as they enter a grocery store, just as they're doing their regular shopping routine, they can complete missions or quick surveys in the store to essentially gain rewards whether that's a gift card for your coffee, whether that's you want to donate some money to charity, whatever it might be, um, as you're browsing, you can kind of answer some questions potentially about that granola stock shelf um, and get points like that. And then essentially nationwide, all of those data points on what's happening in those stores comes back to the business organization at their headquarters so so they can see, okay, here's what's happening in our store today. Here's maybe where we have some problems, or we might need to fix a couple of things, or ultimately maybe we should tell our field reps to hit that store rather than their usual if there's problems.
1: Okay, great. So essentially you've you've got this massive team of of consumers who are helping you to kind of be the the uh, the, the feet on the boots on the ground and, and really Give you some uh, some kind of real time feedback about what's going on in individual stores. So that's a that's a very different way to um, to collect insights about consumers and about shopping. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, as as you know, I mean, hands down, the most the most popular way to to this day to to do consumer research is to do focus groups. Uh, right. People, you know uh 10 housewives come to a facility somewhere and they get they get some pizza and some money and they talk about <laughs> their experiences so uh you know as we speak at this at this moment there are uh, definitely thousands of those going on in the US alone right now but that uh that probably isn't the best way necessarily to to get this kind of real time data so and in fact these conversations don't even take place in the store, right? So they're not necessarily that helpful. And I guess that's why today we're seeing a lot more data-driven efforts to get to the heart of shopping, which I think is what Wiser is all about. So can you talk a little bit about why Wiser thinks that this kind of input is more valuable, this crowdsourced intelligence? How is that more valuable than the way it's always been done, which is thousands of these focus groups around the country.
2: Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting. Um, so I will say, when we typically work with customers, as you mentioned, these focus groups are happening really on a regular basis, and their course is staple when we think about qualitative um, research efforts, so to say. However, what we hear is that while the results are great, Often consumers are coming into these focus groups, um, not necessarily with a bias, but they're answering questions in a way, um, in a state of mind, maybe coming from their home where they already have certain products um, in their cabinets already. Or, um, you know, they've only been exposed to the shelf at their giant grocery store, you know, for 10 years, whatever it might be. So the problem with that becomes, well, we're getting data, but it's not at the actual moment when they are deciding what product they're going to buy. So that opinion could totally change if a new Whole Foods opens up down the street and that consumer walks in and all of a sudden they're exposed to 20 new ice cream brands that they've never seen before in their lives, but they know that they want ice cream that evening. So what Wiser does and in crowdsource intelligence is we ask the consumer their first time in the store, their first time looking at the shelf, their first time being exposed to your brand, hey, what do you think of it looking at the shelf? What is the first brand that even sticks out to you when you're looking at this in the actual retail setting? What are you kind of, what is the reasoning behind this preference? Um, are you familiar with the brand? I mean, a variety of different data points that are just so much more valuable um, as a consumer is in the store live on the day of your product launch whatever it might be so you can get that those insights um, just more in a candid manner more so than a focus group where you're not in the actual setting I would say.
1: Okay so we know you know one problem with with focus groups and uh, with studies like that in general is that there's there's often a desire to do what, what we call pleasing the experimenter, which is that people try to figure out, you know, what does the person want me to say? And I'll, I'll say it, you know, do they want mm-hmm. me to be favorable about the brand? Do they want me to diss the brand? Um, so, how, you know, how do you guys recruit these consumers that are part of this crowdsourcing process? How do you make sure that they don't have that kind of bias?
2: Yeah, that's a great point. We typically ask, what are called screener questions before the consumer um, completes the mission, so to say, in the store. So we'll say, question number one, have you ever tried this brand? And then depending on their answer, um, they'll kind of either, it'll kind of enable the questions for them to answer or they'll be shifted in a different direction for a survey. So um, there's just a way that we would screen people out in order to be um, unbiased before the survey kind of happens and just kind of craft the questions in a way that goes from the bigger picture. um, Hey, do you eat ice cream typically to the smaller funnel potentially at the end? Um, Well, what are your thoughts on this specific brand? So it's all kind of customizable, but you know the mechanisms are in place to ensure that that bias isn't there.
1: Okay. Yeah, and I assume also you have the power of numbers. You have so many of these people mm-hmm. that fewer biased. Hopefully, that will get drowned out, right? So that's, uh, that's yeah, very, yeah, that's very powerful. So, so let me ask you this. I mean, you're sending these people out, and they're looking, especially if there are issues in these stores. Uh, you know, we've all had negative shopping experiences, you know, maybe, maybe uh, we've been in a really crowded store or it's too hot or it's too cold. Uh, The salespeople Mm -hmm. are totally clueless. You know, there's many reasons why we might have a negative experience. So, so based on what you guys are doing, you know, where do, where do brands have the biggest blind spots in terms of consumer insights? You know, what, what, where do they need help the most to improve that customer experience in stores?
2: I mean, it definitely differs when we're talking about, you know, expensive electronics being sold in Best Buy versus, you know, emerging food brands in Whole Foods, which I had kind of touched upon before. Um, but just speaking to, you know, a couple of different examples in each of those categories, you know, you think about going into a Best Buy for a new TV for your finished basement and you know, you're expecting the store associate to be able to help you understand what's important in buying a TV, maybe provide some recommendations. And I think all of us, you know, have probably walked into Best Buy looking for similar things and nine times out of 10 interacting with the store associate. So what we found the biggest blind spot to be in that kind of category, when we're thinking about expensive electronics, is they have no clue who store associates are recommending in their space. So it's really interesting to kind of alleviate those blind spots and find out, hey, um, you know, Best Buy as a retailer tends to recommend LG, whereas Target as a retailer may recommend, um, you know, Vizio or something along those lines. And so what that kind of tells the brand is, hey, we should probably invest some more money in training store associates with this, within this retail account and really educate them on what our benefits are, how to answer certain questions in order to increase our revenue um,
1: there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I guess that's another example of bias, right? You were talking about right. bias before, but employees are biased as well. And in some ways we don't realize, you know, when I used to work in sales, we had something called push money, which which meant that we we actually got compensated for recommending some brands over others. And, of course, Mm -hmm. the customer didn't realize that. I'm not sure how widespread it is. I I think it's pretty common. But is is that an issue that you come up against a lot?
2: So not necessarily that. Um, I would just say, you know, just, again, just from working with the businesses that I have on this, it's really just more so of, you know, the businesses investing resources and money to train the associates. I haven't heard about any incentives per se, um, but the financial impact more so being um, the recommendations and lack of knowledge and just having more knowledge on another brand because maybe they have sent people in whatever it might be to help train them.
1: Right. So, you know, the, the uninformed salesperson is, I, it sounds like there's a big roadblock to the customer experience. And, you know, I've always thought it's ironic that we usually interact with the, the lowest paid person in the store, the person who's just about right. the in the hierarchy. And yet they're the ones who have the <laughs> biggest impact on the store overall. So, uh, that's, you know, kind of interesting. Um, let me ask yeah. you another question. Now you're, you're a millennial, right? So, uh, mm-hmm. what is your favorite kind of shopping experience? You know, for you and people in your, of your age group, what is it that makes uh, a really awesome shopping experience?
2: Yeah. Um, I think that's a great question. I personally, I might be an outlier, but I might not. Um, I really care about the environment, and I really care about businesses that are using their organization as a force for good. So you probably have picked this up already, but my favorite shopping experience is on a weekly basis actually going into Whole Foods. I don't shop for clothes very often, but that experience of going into Whole Foods ensuring that I have a selection of organic products to choose from, um, ensuring that there's fresh produce that I can buy for my meals is one aspect of it. And if I see that that lettuce or that produce maybe is wilted, maybe the expiration dates aren't as far out as I'd like them to be, that is something that definitely kind of hurts that experience. What I love about the experience as I kind of continue through my shopping journey is just looking at all of the new brands on the shelves, reading their labels. I learned so much about how much good um, some of these companies are doing for the world. And um, I see emerging ones on the shelves every day. So that is something that I love about my own shopping experience um, and kind of makes it and know that I'm shopping at a store where I know that they're sourcing from businesses who um, are more so in it for not only the profits, but um, kind of for things that go a little bit more than that, just on a human and environmental level. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, for what it's worth, I don't. I think that's pretty typical for people in your age. Yeah. Uh, it's great. To, it's great to hear that. So. Uh, well, we've reached the end of the segment. I, I, I really appreciate your coming on to share your experiences. And uh, and Christina has generously offered, uh, if anyone works for a brand or retailer and you want to understand how customers experience that brand in a retail setting, uh, Christina will give you a free demo of Wiser's in-store retail auditing platform. So if you're interested in that just shoot me an email, michael at michaelsolomon.com, and I will be sure to forward your request directly to Christina. So thanks so much for coming on today, and uh, we really value your insights.
2: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
1: Please stick around. After the break, we're going to talk to a senior executive at one of the world's largest marketing research firms. And also remember to follow me on Twitter, at at Mike Solo. M-I-K-E-S-O-L-O.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: Book international speaker and renowned author, Dr. Michael Solomon, for your event today. Michael's presentations reveal cutting-edge trends in advertising and marketing, branding, consumer behavior, and social media. He captivates audiences with the insights he unveils during his interactive keynotes and seminars. Michael has spoken to Fortune 500 companies, top advertising agencies, associations, and branches of government on five continents, and has received rave reviews. Book Michael today at michaelsolomon.com. Marketers, Tear Down These Walls, Liberating the Postmodern Consumer by Dr. Michael Solomon is a revolutionary book that explores the psychology of the consumer in today's changing times. The book is packed with information and tools you need to create winning marketing strategies for a complex marketplace. Michael encourages readers to move out of the box, to think like contemporary consumers and do things differently. This is a reader's favorite. Order today at Amazon.com. You are tuned into We Are What We Buy. To reach Dr. Michael Solomon or his guest on today's program, please send an email to michael at michaelsolomon.com. Now back to We Are What We Buy.
1: Hey, we're back to We Are What We Buy, where today's topic is how to decode the mind of the customer. Our next guest brings a very different perspective to understanding consumer insights. Like me, he was trained as a social psychologist, and he applies this training to projects for clients that help them to understand what drives their customers. Dr. John Wittenbreaker is the managing director of the Global Science Organization at Ipsos, where he's responsible for scientific developments in neuroscience, behavioral science, data science, and artificial intelligence, consumer behavior, and political science and sociology for the company 's global business well john that 's really a mouthful, and uh, you 've got a lot of responsibilities. Uh, welcome to the show. thanks a lot, Michael. Uh, great to be here so before we uh, we get into some of the the questions uh, about the about how we collect consumer insights, let me ask you a general one about ipso so uh, I know that Ipsos is a huge research firm. It operates, I, I think, in about 90 countries. So can you just give us a, a little commercial for Ipsos? What does it do, and why should we care?
4: Uh, great. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, Ipsos is, uh, was founded in 1975, um, so it's uh, not a new business. It's been around for a while. Uh, we are the third largest global uh, market uh, research and opinion research company. Um, Our revenues are around uh, 1.75 billion euro a year. We've got 18,000 people um, serving clients in uh, over 90 markets across the globe. So we truly are a a global business, over 5,000 clients. And our primary uh, business historically has been uh, doing uh, marketing and opinion research studies. We do almost 50 million uh, interviews a year. Uh, across the globe uh, with various kinds of consumers and business decision makers. Um, so, our business is uh, to uh, ask people questions about um, their experiences, uh, products, uh, advertising, uh, social issues, governmental policies, etc., uh, collect those data in a scientifically valid way, and uh, prepare reports with insights for our clients. Uh, about uh, consumer and market uh, market opinion.
1: All right, got it. And, and of course, um, Ipsos and the, you know, other big companies that are out there obviously are doing a lot of very sophisticated work. They've got a lot of very highly trained people that are dedicated to understanding what's going on in consumers' minds. Uh, but having said that, you know, your, your title, uh, job title is a bit different. You know, it takes me about a minute to say it. So sure. you're the Chief Science Officer and Managing Director of the Ipsos Global Science Organization at Ipsos. So, what's going on with that? Why is Ipsos interested in science as opposed to just the kind of the everyday science of doing marketing research?
4: Well, uh, you know, the everyday science of doing market research is a very important enterprise. And um, at Ipsos, there's a very clear recognition that what we are doing here is applied science. That when we do market research, it needs that you know, the, the the research design needs to be scientifically rigorous. The plan for uh, sampling the population needs to be scientifically uh, scientifically rigorous. That our questionnaires need to be uh, uh, constructed and validated in a very rigorous way. So we're doing applied social science. You know, you mentioned a while ago that we were both trained as social psychologists. Uh, we have uh um, scores hundreds of, of psychologists sociologists political scientists uh, inside our organization uh, working on uh, the design and development of the, of the services and engagements that we bring to our clients and it's really important in this day and age um, that we do that with the utmost rigor so that's one of our key functions in the global science organization is um, to make sure that when you know we work with our partners inside the business, inside the uh, specialization groups, uh, inside Ipsos, uh, who, who bring services to clients to make sure that the methodologies they use uh, are up to scratch from a scientific point of view uh, and are delivering robust findings and insights um, to our clients. Um, we also have a responsibility and a sort of a, an exciting opportunity uh, to then take from science back into our business. Uh, there have been a lot of um, there are a lot of scientific developments, a lot of innovation that comes out of science and out of technology. And so another key function um, uh, um, as the global science organization inside Ipsos is to harvest from these uh, uh, partnerships that we develop, academic partnerships with, uh, with uh, scientists and, and other professors uh, in uh, universities across the globe and in uh, various research institutes, uh, to bring the latest scientific developments um, to our business and to use those as a way to inspire uh, innovation inside our organization uh, and then to bring better value to our clients, give them better insights into what uh, consumers are uh, thinking about. Uh, you mentioned some of the disciplines we focus on. You know, We, we spend a lot of time trying to understand how neuro, neuroscientific and, and biophysiological measurements can be used to augment Uh, the sort of question and answer um, research that we're so famous for, uh, so that we can understand not only what people say, but also what they feel and how they experience things in real time at a very granular and moment-to-moment level. Um, So we do a lot of work in that space. We do a lot of work in uh, the behavioral sciences, trying to understand how, uh, how values and beliefs lead to uh, behavior and may help support behavioral change and then how we might construct the choice architecture, the way we frame choices uh, to uh, help optimize uh, the way people make decisions about the products they buy or the people they vote for or the policies that they uh, may support into what we do at Ipsos.
1: So you you know you mentioned uh, you mentioned a couple of uh, of areas that a lot of people are talking about. You mentioned neuromarketing. You mentioned artificial intelligence. And of course, part of your job—I'm not sure—I envy you—but part of your job is to stay on top of what's going on uh, with scientific developments in a number of disciplines. Um, you know, f- what what right now do you think are the really hot topics that? my listeners should be knowledgeable about, or at least be aware that, uh, you know, these things are going on and they may influence how they make their business decisions down the road. You know, what are, what are, can you give us a couple of specific examples, uh, you know, without giving away the store of, uh, you know, what people should be thinking about right now? Yeah, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's a really good question. And, and, uh, I, honestly, I,
4: that's one of the most fun parts of my job is, uh, is staying up on uh, the scientific literature. And b- by the way, I don't do this alone. I've got a great team of people, specialists in each of these disciplines who are really the experts. You know, My job is just to bring them together, orchestrate them to make sure that we're moving our scientific enterprise uh, forward in a, in a constructive way for the business. So yeah, definitely not doing this alone. So, what are some of the uh, biggest trends in science? Uh, you know, one of them I, I mentioned a while ago was, you know, understanding how people make decisions. Um, you know, there's this uh, this really remarkable uh, uh, scientific literature going back into the 70s that uh, uh, in social and cognitive psychology about how people how people make decisions, and it's very much both a behavioral but also a neuroscientific uh, um, uh, discipline. Um, To understand how they take on information, how they weigh that information, how they make decisions, uh, both from a, you know, kind of a slow and deliberative, rational kind of point of view, but also how people make decisions in the real world. And sometimes you make decisions in a very reflexive, uh, fast and furious uh, fashion. So there's some really great research that's been developed in, in, in that discipline. Uh, Many of you uh, maybe have read the book, Thinking Fast and Slow, from from Daniel Kahneman, uh, which really produced a revolution in our business. And what we see at at Ipsos is an evolution even beyond that um, uh, into understanding more deeply how uh, automatic uh, sort of decision-making interplays with more deliberative uh, decision-making and how the brain uh, manages that in a much more balanced way. Uh, for, uh, in recent years, you know, people have been sort of throwing out uh, the, the sort of uh, more deliberative aspect, saying everything is about hot emotion and you got to be on emotion all the time. That's certainly true in many instances, but if that's true, you know, if that were true in every instance, uh, it would be, you know, a pretty sort of disorganized uh, kind of experience for people. We're not only about those hot emotions. And so understanding the balance of more deliberative processes and, and uh, these more uh, impulsive automatic processes is a very important part of what we're doing to advance the science and then to use that um, to improve uh, our own applications and our our own insights uh, for our customers. We see a similar sort of thing happening in artificial intelligence. There's this kind of explosion of interest in artificial intelligence, and there's honestly a lot of sort of misinformation and vaporware out there about what is and what is not artificial intelligence. Um, we use artificial intelligence a lot of episodes for, for a variety of, of purposes. and we, we find them uh, really exciting. A lot of it is helping us understand um, uh, and sort of quantize big data. I mentioned that we do a lot of social media analysis. You know it, it takes a lot of artificial intelligence to be able to literally read, machine read millions of posts and to, and to convert that into you know what are the themes that are being said. What are the emotions behind what's being said, as can be inferred from what people are saying in social media? Um, so it's those kinds of applications of, uh, of artificial intelligence. But we're also interested in Ipsos at, at, at using artificial intelligence to help us engage with people. You know, uh, right now there's you know, kind of this craze around uh, uh, bots, if you will, or art, uh, intelligent agents. This is an area we're exploring as well, to try to understand how we might be able to leverage that uh, to do a better job, a more comprehensive job of listening to what's going on uh, in, in the marketplace. So, yeah, there are uh, a, a wide variety of really interesting scientific developments that um, that we're focused on and um, and exploring and, and and pulling pulling into our business. Great question. Yeah.
1: Yep. Thanks. And let me ask you one final question, John. And uh, kind of bring bringing everything down to the street level. I ask a lot of my guests this question. Um, Many of your clients are the big companies with, you know, with big pockets for research and so on. Um, but many of my listeners are involved with uh, with smaller companies, um, and they don't necessarily have the resources to work with a company like Ipsos. So, can you leave us with with any quick insights that a person who doesn't have access to, you know, to the brain trust uh, at Ipsos? You know, what are, what are a couple of insights that you could share with, with someone like that, that they can apply to their business?
4: Well, I, I mean, one of the things I will say uh, is that, you, you know, you don't have to deal with a big research company to do research. Um, and so, you know, one of the insights or one of the guideposts I, I would say is, you um, you know, it's important sometimes to operate on sort of gut instinct and to make a decision based on, uh, you know, your, your own sort of quick read of the landscape. But for important decisions, yeah, I would encourage you to find ways to collect data, to, to be more disciplined about applying, you know, good survey or social science methodologies to the decisions you need to make. There are all kinds of tools that are available um, to do that. And, in fact, Ipsos is, sees that as an important opportunity as well, and we're working on ways to, uh, to, to bring more simplified, more scalable tools to all kinds of decision-makers, uh, companies large and small. Uh, but there are ways to do research uh, yourself, to do simple surveys yourself that are fast and inexpensive. They may not be as sophisticated as some of the applications that we have uh, at Ipsos, uh, but there are ways with a simple Google search uh, that you can uh, you can find to uh, to do straightforward surveys around customer satisfaction, around uh, the experience that people have with the products, around new ideas that you may be exploring. So that that would be the first thing I would suggest is uh, you know a lot of business questions can be uh, can be boiled down to a good empirical question, and having a little data uh, can can really help you uh, get a much better sense of uh, you know what might be the right way to go when you have a decision. Um, to make. So I, I think that's, you know, I'm flogging the, uh, waving the flag for, uh, for science here and uh, it can be accessible to a, a wide variety of people. So I would encourage you to explore those, um, explore those um, pathways. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I, I, and I think maybe another insight that, uh, that, uh, that I would mention is, um, is to uh, take advantage of, of uh, publicly available information. There's a lot of information that you can get uh, these days from, uh, from the government and from ob- other public sources uh, that can help you make decisions. Um, so, yeah, in addition to asking questions yourself, uh, make sure you've scoured the landscape and see what's available from your, from your, uh, your local city, from your uh, trade association, uh, from other sources that you might, uh, might have access to. Of course, we'd love you to come to Ipsos uh, and, uh, and engage us. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think you're right, uh, uh, Michael, we're not for everybody. And, um, but we are big supporters of, of using these kind of data ourselves. Uh, and so I would advise, uh, your listeners to, um, to, to, do the same.
1: Thanks. That's some great advice. And it, it really syncs with, you know, my mantra that I, I say a lot at, when I'm giving keynotes and so on. And that basically is, Don't assume that you understand what's going on in your customers' heads. Don't just sit in your office and say, well, they must be doing this or that. Just get off your butt and get out there and talk to them one way or the other. Collect data. Uh, There's lots of ways to do that, but anything you do is probably better than nothing. So uh, I really appreciate your perspective on this. And, uh, yeah, this is great stuff. I thank you so much for taking some time out of your scientific day to Join us and share your insights.
4: Well, it's been a pleasure, Michael. Thank you very much.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America.
0: Book international speaker and renowned author Dr. Michael Solomon for your event today. Michael's presentations reveal cutting edge trends in advertising and marketing, branding, consumer behavior, and social media. He captivates audiences with the insights he unveils during his interactive keynotes and seminars. Michael has spoken to Fortune 500 companies, top advertising agencies, associations, and branches of government on five continents, and has received rave reviews. Book Michael today at michaelsolomon.com. Marketers, Tear Down These Walls, Liberating the Postmodern Consumer by Dr. Michael Solomon is a revolutionary book that explores the psychology of the consumer in today's changing times. The book is packed with information and tools you need to create winning marketing strategies for a complex marketplace. Michael encourages readers to move out of the box, to think like contemporary consumers and do things differently. This is a reader's favorite. Order today at Amazon.com. You are tuned into We Are What We Buy. To reach Dr. Michael Solomon or his guest on today's program, please send an email to Michael at michaelsolomon.com. Now back to We Are What We Buy.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to We Are What We Buy. And and this week we are looking at how marketers learn about what we want to buy. That is, how they collect the insights that are going to allow them to Develop the products and services that people want. So uh, we we can't give people what what they want unless we know what they want. And and of course one of the issues there is we don't always know what we want. You know we may think we do, but um, but maybe there's things going on in our minds that are a little harder to explain. And so. Uh, doing traditional marketing research that 's always been a bit of a challenge and uh, and sometimes uh, frankly, traditional research just doesn 't give you the kind of insights that that are really valuable uh, it 's more like describing how people feel rather than understanding how they feel and and Our next guest uh, uh, runs a company that uh, that really acknowledges that problem and tries to develop some methods to to get around that so I'm really happy to, uh, to introduce Anders Bankston. He is the CEO of Proto Brand, and uh, this is a market research company based in Boston, uh, works with major consumer brands a- around the country, and, uh, and has been acknowledged as being one of the more innovative market research firms out there. So, uh, Anders, welcome to the show.
5: Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
1: And uh, I'm really eager to, to get your thoughts about this this basic issue. You know, most conventional marketing research asks people to respond to, to scales. Uh, for example, I'm sure most of our, our listeners here have, had, have responded to these. And it might be something as simple as you make a purchase and you answer a little survey after it, or maybe you've been asked to take a survey online. Many, many of us have. Uh, that gives us maybe some insight into what people like, but uh, you are really starting, I think, from the perspective that that, that really is, isn't enough. You know, uh, t- can you just tell us a little bit about Proto Brand and, and what your approach is that's a bit different?
5: Right. I'd be happy to. So uh, at, at Proto Brand, um, we are focused on developing methods uh, that allows us to understand uh, the much richer context around how people understand the world, how they think about brand, brands and how they feel about brands. So the example that you took before about a survey where we ask people uh, to respond with a number uh, to a, a statement or a question that gives us, uh, as marketers, gives a a very limited understanding as to what that really means. Uh, Yes, we can measure a specific word, uh, but do we really know what it means when people provide uh, the number four on a five-point scale, for example? Um, And what does that mean? What does a five mean versus a three, for example? Um, And so that's where we are focused on developing methods that allows people to express themselves in much richer ways than just providing a number to to a question. Um, We use visual techniques, uh, visual projective techniques that allows people to select images and then verbalize how they think and feel. And then we quantify uh, those insights, those that qualitative text data, we actually use um, uh, text analytics software that is powered by AI, so artificial intelligence, that allows us to much faster um, code and analyze a large data set, a qualitative data set, and then report on that in a a quantitative setting. Um, So I can give a little example. We quite recently worked with a a major luxury car brand um, in the U.S., and um, they measured their brand as to dimensions like, uh, leadership uh, cachet or prestige so they had a question each for those uh, for those words and they basically asked uh, does our brand have cachet does our brand have leadership uh, the, the the problem this brand had was that they also measured that for their competitors and their competitors also ranked very high on those dimensions now two brands can be still very different they can rank high on those on those dimensions, but they can occupy very different meaning universes in the minds of people. And so that's what these traditional surveys are not giving marketers the full understanding of what their brands mean, the symbolic and emotional footprint that it has uh, uh, in the minds of people. And so that's what we are focused on, uh, on uncovering with these, uh, rich, these techniques that allows us to get richer and deeper insights
1: it's not it's not enough just to be just to have a, a set of products or brands that are similar in terms of their functionality right you can have three or four different luxury cars and certainly each is going to each is going to get you to your destination uh, but you know people are willing to spend maybe some people are going to buy a car for $10,000 others for $200,000 and i think what you're saying is that there aren't necessarily rational reasons driving that. It's more about almost the irrational side of the consumer. That's, that's really what you're focusing on. So uh, yeah, I think to a lot of people, the idea that we, when we make decisions, they're not necessarily even in our best interest sometimes. Uh, they're driven by all of these kind of irrational motivations. Can you talk a little bit about that philosophy and, and how that results in a different kind of outcome?
5: oh oh absolutely and And so the marketer 's role for the most part is actually to build in you can call it build in additional meaning to a brand that takes it beyond that that functional domain uh, because think about it if two uh, if two brands if you don 't know anything about two brands and the only thing you know about them are the the technical specification you you might compare. Let's do two cars. You compare the horsepower, you compare the warranty, the price, um, and so forth, and the and the um, uh, the the gas mileage. Uh, Yes, then it's a pure technical uh, uh, evaluation, and you will, you know, economic theory will suggest that you select the one that has a a better value relative to the price. Um, But branding and marketing is all about uh, moving beyond that and, and instill new meanings. That has actually really nothing to do with the product itself, but it's just over time uh, marketers associate a brand with uh, cultural meanings that we as consumers eventually, if we, if we find them compelling enough, will start to think that that is really what the brand provides. If you look at Nike as a brand, well, you know, a Nike sneaker allows you to run, but people who use Nike sneakers, they might buy into the idea that Nike uh, provides them with a better way of running. It brings out that inner athlete, that, that competitiveness that allows them to perform better. Uh, that has nothing to do with the product itself. It's all about the, the, the consumer and how they might think a brand provides something, something intangible that is beyond the functionality of the brand itself. And so you could argue that most advanced brands that operate at a, at a level of uh, as a large consumer brand, provides something in addition to its pure function. That is, is something, some reason that the consumer goes there other than the product itself. And so oftentimes, that may relate to uh, an identity uh, that the consumer has or aspires to have um uh so that they can they can feel that by consuming this brand they 're a little closer to that ideal self that they like to be, so that 's how we 're kind of thinking about consumers consuming symbolically uh to fulfill their identity projects
1: well andrews that's that 's music to my ears i uh, i mean the uh the the name of this show is we are what we buy so
5: I, I'm thinking you'll, you would agree with that, wouldn't you? Absolutely. We are what we buy uh, because consumption is a reflection of who we are, um, all kinds of consumption. Uh, and for the most part, consumption has, uh, involves brands. Um, it's hard these days to not consume by also consuming brands. And brands are, are uh, uh, managed by companies that have very specific ideas of what kind of meaning they think is the best universe and which kind of myths, uh, societal myths that they can tap into uh, to make brands powerful. Uh, and so uh, consumers have, uh, for a very long time, it's been shown in, in research that we, ex- we define ourselves by our consumption and, about, and, and the objects that we, we own. So the possessions that we have, this goes back to um, a consumer researcher, Russ Belk, who talked about the possessions and how that they become an extension of ourselves. Uh, and much of our consumption in brands is working in that very same way, how people think of their cars as an extension of their self. And, of course, the brand is part of that. And if the brand doesn't express who you are or who you want to be, then there's a discrepancy, and it's not an ideal situation. And, and, and so, as consumers, we strive to align ourselves with brands that share our values and, and, and our identity projects.
1: Great. Thanks. And, and so, Matt, let's dig in a little bit to how you – get into this because obviously it's it's much harder to measure something like the brand is a part of who I am as opposed to uh, the gas mileage that you that you might get. Um, I, I know that, that, that a lot of your research these days is done online. And, and of course, that's a big change that many or most marketing research companies have made. It's not like the old days where you might get a survey in the in the mail actually and and have to fill that out and put it in an envelope that I don't think we see that too much anymore. Uh, I know that some of what you do in, involves uh looking at what people are themselves writing about brands and and this is a this is a new domain of marketing research where ironically we're not asking people sometimes for their perceptions of brands they're just they're just telling us and so what you're doing, I think, is harvesting information that's already out there. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about how you how you do that? How do you look at what people are writing about brands and turn that into something that your clients can use
5: right right so um, in, in in marketing research um, there is usually uh, two historically there were two distinctions we were either thought of of research as as qualitative, qualitative meaning that it would be some kind of typically an interview or observation of, of people where we would that would allow us to ask fairly open-ended question, not necessarily leading the consumer or the respondent in any particular direction, but just asking very big open-ended questions. Um, where you don't didn't even have necessarily to talk about uh, if you were interested to understand a brand, what people how people think about it, you may not necessarily ask specifically about it, but rather see uh, how indirectly do people talk about brands as they, for example, talk about um, consumption of uh, a in, in a particular domain. Um, quantitative research, on the other hand, traditionally used to be, as we talked about before, very uh, uh, lots of direct questions to which respondents will an- answer with a question, with a, with a number. Uh, and typically, a, an old-school uh, survey online could be 20, 25, 30 minutes long. So really long, boring surveys where where people answer with a number. Now that technology is fundamentally changing how we can actually collect data online. So at Protobrand, we work with uh, visual techniques. That are, and, and this is actually originally a technique that was developed for, for face-to-face, uh, what we call in-depth interviewing, uh, when a researcher uh, interviews a respondent face-to-face. We've now been able to take that kind of methodology online so that respondents are on their own, on a smartphone uh, or, a, or a desktop computer, uh, and they they participate in this research where we allow them to express deeper thoughts and feelings. So one of the techniques is this visual technique of using um, visual metaphors to el- enable people to uh, access uh, their non-conscious thoughts and feelings. Uh, and so that may sound weird. What is non-conscious thoughts and feelings? Well, um, if we for a minute turn to behavioral economics, because that's a topic that is, is very much on 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 marketers' minds these days, um, is a recognition that uh, in behavioral economics, uh, uh, you see that the consumer has the capacity uh, to process data both both fast and slow. So uh, one of the leading uh, behavioral economists out there, Daniel Kahneman, is in his book writing uh, about thinking fast and slow is illustrating these two systems of how we process data. So the fast system, the system one, is is uh, something that can process enormous amount of information without us even knowing it, uh, but it so it happens in the background. Uh, system two, on the other hand, is this conscious, deliberate brain that can do a lot of problem solving. Uh, so one of the, the examples that he uses um, when explaining this is if you, if if I ask you what two plus two is, uh, you can answer that in a split second. You don't have to think what that is. That's a system one response. Whereas if I take some random numbers like 13 times 26, you have no idea and you have to start problem solving and, and figure that out. So what we as marketers have to do is to work with these two systems and make sure that we're not just capturing those deliberate, conscious, problem-solving questions, but also allowing people to express the things that they already know to be true without having to think about it. Uh, And so that's the the fast brain that processes that information unconsciously. So the technique we use, the visual technique, if we go back to that, that allows people to Uh, to process lots of visual information before they select an image to which they then will explain how that applies to how they think and feel about a brand or about a person who's using a brand. So we use use lots of uh, projective techniques that way that allow people to, in a much more open-ended, non-directional way, um, uh, uh, or or an unprompted way, rather, uh, express how they think and feel about a brand. So that then provides us with uh, the the text data that the respondent writes, so that's like sort of the natural discourse, uh, the natural discourse of how they think and feel about the brand. But it also provides us with a lens into how they visually uh, think and feel about the brand. So these visual metaphors become very powerful for us to understand where in 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 the meaning universe where does the brand sit relative to its competitors, and so that gives us a much richer context than if you then could think of the more traditional output from a quantitative survey that gives you uh, an average score. Uh, so you look at lots of bar charts uh, uh, and see how brands compare, but you, you don't have access to that rich context that is both visual and verbal.
1: All right. Well, it's definitely a new world for marketing research and it's fascinating. Uh, Anders, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. And listeners out there, I hope you'll share your insights as well with me. Please email me if if you have any comments, suggestions, ideas for future shows, whatever you'd like to tell me. I'd love to hear from you. Please email me at michael at michaelsolomon.com. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Mike Solo and LinkedIn as well. So see you next week and remember, We are what we buy, and we buy what we are.
0: Thank you for listening to We Are What We Buy. Please join your host, Dr. Michael Solomon, again next Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, have a winning week.